Deshaun Jackson I wrote for 538 is probably the most valuable non-quarterback player in his era. On this week's Against the Grain podcast, we talked to someone way smarter than me about week two, the lines, and analytics. Let's do this. We are cutting against the grain. Against the grain. Against the grain. Against the grain. Now your host for Against the Grain. Against the grain. Here's Andrew Perloff. Welcome back to Against the Grain. We've had a few days to overreact, sort of calm down, uh, get the emotion out of our analysis, and really look at week one and upcoming week two for what they are. Now, I learned an important lesson this week. Uh, My producer, Mario, is wondering what it was. I got on my SI show that I do with Albert Breer and talked about Dak Prescott and the Dallas Cowboys and how amazing they looked with Kellen Moore as offensive coordinator, how second-year receiver Michael Gallup took the next step and is going to be a big superstar, how they didn't even need Ezekiel Elliott. I made the Dallas Cowboys look like the greatest show on turf Rams. What was my mistake, Mario? Didn't point out the fact that they were playing the Giants. Exactly. That is why you're the producer on this podcast, because you were brilliant. Unfortunately, Twitter called me out. So Dak Prescott has had a lot of success against the Giants, and it continued on Sunday. Now, he's also had success against the Redskins, who they play this Sunday. So I'm not saying that he's not going to do it again. But it's a classic example of week one overreaction. Of course, I think the ultimate one was Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. Everybody's going crazy about Lamar Jackson, but he played the Dolphins. So at least they realized he was playing the Dolphins. So I've sort of been looking at all the spreads from this week, and I'm trying to figure out where is the spread overinflated because of what happened in week one. I'm just going to give you a few examples of where I think this is true. Uh, Let's start with... um, the Titans. Now, they blew out, absolutely destroyed the Cleveland Browns. But the Indianapolis Colts played really well toward the end against the Chargers. Now, my man Dan Patrick thinks the Colts are going to win this game outright. And I tend to believe this is going to be a much different game than we saw week one from the Titans. I am not buying that offensive production. If they're going to win, it's going to be like 18-15. They're the ultimate like eight scoring 18 or 12 points. Mario, by the way, was asking me who to bet on because you're about to jump into betting full force. First time, yeah. I'm going to jump right in. Everybody's been talking about it. Um, yeah, I just want to see what it's like. How but much are you going to put down? I, I was thinking like $40. Kind of start. Okay. Um, but I, I want to bet across a couple teams. I want to have you know some skin in a couple games. I don't want to see you uh, going to like a pawn shop in week eight because you've lost so much money. But I like it. Just uh, I think, by the way, this episode is going to help you. We're going to talk to The Athletic and 538's Michael Salfino, who's a hardcore analytics guy who has really interesting insights into all of these games. And again, we're trying to look at some spreads that might be overinflated. Uh, Another one, Philadelphia is favored over Atlanta at Atlanta. Now, if you watch the second half of week one, you say, oh my God, the Eagles are going to destroy the Falcons, who really look terrible against Minnesota. Uh, Now, again, totally different game here. It's in Atlanta. Philadelphia's defense did not look great against Washington. As I pointed out earlier in the week, they they have a lot of defensive guys who were off during the preseason. I I think they have a lot of work to do. That's a game I like, which, by the way, could mean in this case, because Philadelphia is such a good team that (laughs) they're going to roll. Another interesting spread to me is this uh, Cincinnati against San Francisco. Now, no one's going to watch this game. It's opened up as San Francisco, even though it's in Cincinnati, was a favorite, then 
the sharp money, as I say, immediately came in on the Bengals. Uh, now the Bengals are favored by a point and a half. In Cincinnati, a game like this, San Francisco traveling sort of halfway across the country for a 1 p.m. game, I don't buy the Niners. I, I know Jimmy G is still rehabbing. Who are his weapons? Mario, tell me, besides George Kittle, who scares you on that team? Nobody. I mean, Goodwin, he can probably, you know, He's run fast. Past, yeah, he can run <laughs> past some DBs. Yeah. I mean, Tevin Coleman's yeah. out, right? Yeah. Now, of course, I, I'm so... You know, Eddie Dalton's my guy, and I'm in love what I saw out of Zach Taylor attacking the defense. <laughs> but again, that's more of like San Francisco. Yeah, I know they beat the Bucks, but Jameis was throwing the ball right to them. So uh, San Francisco defense, that's legit, by the way. That D-line is really good, but I, I don't know how they're going to generate offense. Again, a little bit nerve-wracking. I don't want you to put the house on it, Mario. Uh, la- I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to steer clear of that game. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Uh, okay. And then the big game, of course, the, every, the spread everyone's been talking about and putting in historical, historical perspective, Patriots 18 and a half right now over the Dolphins. I don't know. Now, they, they've really struggled in Miami. Tom Brady's not played well there, but 18 and a half for a divisional game early in the season seems like huge to me. I think it just went up a point. I see it at yeah. 19 and a half right now. Yeah, it With seems that- to be going that direction. It opened at 14 and a half. It just feels like so much right at... And, it's a former coach, Brian Flores. He obviously, forget like Bill Belichick being nice to him. He knows this Patriots offense as well as anybody. because He's practiced against it. The, can the Dolphins really be that bad, Mario? They're an NFL team. They have Xavier Howard. They have Minka Fitzpatrick. Brian Fitzmagic. They have pro players. But then again, I'd use the same philosophy that you just used with the Niners. Where is he going to come from? Like you have Fitzmagic, and who else is going to score? You don't have a Kenny Stills anymore. That the I lack can't... of Kenny Stills, by the way. Oh, Kenny Stills! If, <laughs> if you're the Saints and Kenny Stills is on the field with less than a minute left, and you're down by that many points, you do not let Kenny Stills run by you. But that's a that's besides the point. Last game I want to talk about in the intro before we get to Michael Salfino, who have even more interesting points on these games. Browns Jets. This is such an interesting game because. The whole world on Monday night is going to be tuned in to see what the Browns are going to do. Odell Beckham coming back to New York. There's no Sam Darnold, but they can only put the spread up so much. I saw it immediately went from two and a half to six. You know, it seems so obvious that the Browns are going to win by more than six points because you know of all those weapons there that it makes me a little bit nervous. But I see it actually going up because the Jets injuries just terrify me. I feel like the Browns are going to be desperate under Freddie Kitchens. Talk about a must-win game in week two. They have to show up here. And they would have been much closer against Tennessee if they didn't have those 18 penalties for 182 yards. They have to course correct. Yeah, I mean, and is Baker going to come into this game and flop again? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of pressure on him. Well, it's interesting because Baker looked confused against Tennessee, man. He did not look nearly as sharp as last year. That might just be because Tennessee's defense is really good. It might be that Freddie Kitchens is not ready to be a play caller and head coach and all that. But you know what? We're talking with our hearts, Mario, and you cannot bet with your heart. You have to bet with your brain. And that's why I want to bring in Michael Salfino, who not only is he writing for The Athletic, Wall Street Journal, 538, he helped form this analytics company. He is way smarter. You're going to hear some big words, but you might learn something that will help you bet on week two of the NFL season. We are now joined by Michael Salfino, who writes for The Athletic, for 538, for The Wall Street Journal. And he was part of the founding of 
Massey Peabody, which you hear a lot about. Can you explain? But I don't think the casual football fan knows exactly what this is. Can you explain what Massey Peabody Analytics is and what sort of the philosophy behind it is? Well, they're trying to find they're they're trying to predict games with the statistics that are most impactful on outcomes in in the NFL. So they're not looking so much for the descriptive statistics and even including wins. Like wins do not really predict future wins. It's the things that actually result in wins that predict future wins. So what they do is that they they uh, look at the statistics that correlate best to winning, and they backtest uh, everything, and then they come up with a model that actually is able to forecast NFL games by ranking the teams as to how they would expect it to perform against a league average team on a neutral field. And then by matching up all of those teams based on the current week's action, they could come up with sort of like their own point spread and find out where the inefficiencies exist with the Vegas point spread. And usually there's not that many inefficiencies because Vegas is pretty much doing the same thing as Cade Massey and Rufus Peabody are doing with their modeling. But sometimes there is a difference because, as you know, a lot of times in um, in gambling, the the odds makers are setting a line based on what they perceive the public sentiment is on the game, not necessarily what they forecast the actual game to um, uh, the, the, not necessarily the outcome that they right. forecast. What is an example of an analytic that has a, plays a key role in determining future wins? Um, I, I think probably one of the, um, biggest stats is just offensive play success rate. Hmm. So what that is pretty much is adjusting each play for down and distance. So it's how that play actually sets up the next down or results in a first down or a touchdown itself. And offense is, is more uh, predictive than defense. It's more stable. It correlates better week to week, year to year. Um, so, so it's the offensive component of that stat that's probably the most important statistic in, in trying to figure out who is going to win a game. Um, obviously, there are other stats that, that go into their modeling, uh, a variety of them. But if I were to say which one thing you should look at in a game to try to get a sense for who's going to win, it would be that offensive play success stat. stat. So why doesn't the average fan really just focus on things like that? Because we're going to look at all the games this week. The storylines, you know, it, it feels like everybody reacts to what happened in week one and says this is going to happen in week two. But what you're saying is analytics probably doesn't view it that way. Well, it, it, it would as far as, um, in other words, if a team had a really high success rate of plays in week one, um, and then obviously you have to figure out a way to weight their 2018 performance uh, as it relates to the 2019 season. But when you come up with all of that, and then obviously the, the week one action would be a component of that, then, then that would be reasonably predictive. But there's obviously a lot of noise in the early season because until the season sort of stabilizes after about three or four weeks, um, you have some sort of like amalgam of like last year's data and this year's data, but you have a new team this year versus last year's team. So there's 
So it's really hard to get a, a real firm sense of what we're likely to see going forward. Right. So if we dive into this week's game, for example, Dallas uh, at Washington. Now, last week, the, the Cowboys looked amazing. Uh, Kellen Moore's offense, Dak Prescott. But it's, they're playing a Giants team that Dak Prescott has kind of owned through the years. So what are we supposed to take, you know, if you're trying to be a smart fantasy player or a smart better on that, I think there's a tendency to rush in on the Cowboys and say, i got to get Michael Gallup. Uh, they're going to kill Washington. Right. What's a more reasonable approach? Well, Washington uh, is expected to have a much better defense than the Giants have. So the Giants have a little bit of that quality, not as much on offense, but definitely on defense as, like, say, like the uh, Dolphins, where it's really hard to get a sense for – how good the Ravens are because the Dolphins' defense is just so bad. Right. Uh, the Giants aren't quite at that level, but they're pretty close. I mean, they had sh- trouble uh, rushing the passer, and then they traded their best pass rusher, so they have no pass rush. They have all kinds of problems on uh, on the defensive side of the ball, so it's hard to really know whether the Dallas's outstanding performance in Week One, where and remember they called off the dogs, like they could have probably scored. 50 or 60 points in that game if they felt like it. It's hard to know whether or not that's indicative of Dallas's power offensively or the Giants' weakness defensively. So do you have, is there a way, do you have a hunch on how this game's going to play out in Washington? I would really expect that the, um, that the Cowboys are going to win the game rather easily, even though it's at Washington. And I know Washington really put up a pretty good fight unexpectedly at Philadelphia last week. Yep. But I just think, you know, with Case Keenum, who's not terrible, um, but he's certainly not a, a good quarterback. Um, there's just so many advantages for the Cowboys on the offensive side of the ball. And since offense tends to dictate outcomes, you figure you're going to get a, a better week out of Ezekiel Elliott at, now that he's a little bit more acclimated um, to the NFL action. So, I'd be I'd be surprised if the Cowboys were not able to win this game by at least a touchdown. Okay, uh, you mentioned the Ravens. That's another game where the temptation is to read into that Week One blowout against Miami. But you know we don't really know that much about what Arizona is. Last year their defense was terrible. This game's at Baltimore. It's like a fourteen point spread, and fantasy wise, I think people are jumping all over Hollywood Brown and Mark Andrews. Are the Ravens going to keep this up in Week Two? You know, they, they do get a really uh, enticing matchup again. And I think this is another one of those, like, 1 o'clock games where the team is traveling time zones and yeah. basically playing in the morning for them, which is, I think, every game last year was like that for the team that traveled. Uh, and Arizona sometimes is two and sometimes it's three hours difference. But but I think um, for all the teams that had the three-hour difference on the east for the East Coast time zone, they all played on the road at 1 o'clock, yeah. um, so 10 o'clock their time. And so it seems like the NFL is kind of doing this again. Uh, teams can actually maybe um, protect themselves against those effects by arriving a day early, and you would think that teams would be smart enough to realize this at this point. And I'm not really sure like what the – how the teams are actually traveling, but Baltimore is just like a really tough place to play. When you look at teams and you adjust for their actual quality by comparing their home performance to their road performance, 
the Ravens really do have probably the most extreme home field advantage in the NFL. Really? I, you know, it's funny. I don't think of that. Like, you know, I think of places like Lambeau and, you know, New England as the, the obvious home field advantages. But Baltimore, the numbers have proven that Baltimore is really, really hard to play at. Yes, exactly. Yeah, very, very much so. And, yeah. and again, you don't want to look at a team like, say, the Patriots on the road. Uh, at home because they're great on the road. They're just a great team. So ah. what you do is you just look at the winning percentage uh, at home versus on the road, and then that differential really forms the sort of the analytics basis for assessing a team's actual home field advantage. Okay, well, you bring it right to a team. The one place we know New England can't play on the road, where they're not a great road team, is at Miami. And obviously, after Miami last week, the spread is gigantic. Is there? But I look... Honestly, I look, Michael, at the pat the five of the last six games have been losses. Brady does not play there well. There's no way in my mind Miami can be that bad two weeks in a row. They have a veteran quarterback. It just feels like everyone assuming this is going to be an all-time blowout. I see it as maybe a more complicated game. Well, the the thing that's tricky about this is the Dolphins are, by all reports, actually trying to lose, right? So I guess. They're like, they're like the 1962 Mets. If the 1962 Mets were trying to be the 1962 <laughs> Mets, so um, maybe there could be sort of like a uh, producer's type of effect where you know they're trying to put on the worst Broadway show imaginable, and somehow <laughs> it becomes a hit. But you know, I don't, I don't really see that happening. I just think that they're they're actually nailing this this drive to suck so um <laughs> it's it's hard for me to imagine that that the patriots aren't going to completely blow their doors off i don't know the extent they might have a little there might be a little bit of mercy though because yeah. obviously you know th- these are belichick's former coaches so he may not want to grind them into dust but uh, so it's a big number. I mean, that's as big a number as we've ever had for a uh, home team being an underdog in NFL history. Yeah. I just feel like something happens in divisional games. Do you ever see the curb, your enthusiasm, where Larry David was in the producers and he messed up all the lines? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's uh, underrated. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to another game where a West Coast team is going to the East Coast. Seattle at Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh's about a four-point favorite. Is the same effect... Can you say everything you said about Arizona going to Baltimore should be true for Seattle going to Pittsburgh? That should give the Steelers a big advantage, a 1 p.m. game. You would think so, right? And and plus there are some injury concerns. I think Tyler Lockett is having back problems. He didn't practice on Wednesday. He might be out. Um, it's hard for me to really get a sense for the, for the Seattle offense. Obviously, you respect Russell Wilson, and he may not actually need – to have a full complement of weapons in order to be effective because of the, the, the way he's able to sort of um, take games over and improvise on his own. But I think usually you go with the more desperate team, and the Steelers are by far the more desperate team. They cannot lose this game at home this week off of that performance last week because there will just be too many questions asked about their offensive viability given – you know, the loss of Le'Veon, Le'Veon Bell two years ago, followed by the loss of Antonio Brown this season. And um, it, it they really just did not look to be a functional offense last week. But you have to also give the Patriots credit because with the exception 
of that game against the Chiefs and last year's playoffs, their defense has been dominant. Yeah. They've been shutting teams down left and right. So maybe this is more that we just, you know, it, we don't tend to really view the Patriots as a defensive team. We view them more mm. as an offensive team, but maybe that's changed. And so maybe the Steelers really alarming offensive performance last week where they had really no downfield component to their, to their uh, game and their passing game. Maybe that was an aberration caused by the quality of the opponent and not so much anything that, that is lacking with them uh, in a sort of a neutral context. Well, you said desperation. Like that does not sound like a an analytical term or or something you would say in five thirty eight. That sounds like a much more emotional thing. But is there a real? Can you can you quantify an uh, something like that? It sounds like an emotional thing that somebody like you might not say about a team. Yeah, it's definitely like narrative street. But yeah. you know, I mean, I think really this comes down to. Um, uh, it's like the old debates with with in baseball with the scouts versus the analytics, right? Yeah. Like the answer is always somewhere in between. Mm. It's never. Um, I think that there's a, a great void in the NFL when it comes to analytics. Like for example, we've known it's been well known. Uh, Bud Goody is a is the sort of the Bill James of of the NFL. And um, he's he's he passed away um, at, at in his 90s, I believe, um, not that long ago. But in the 1960s, he clued the NFL into the fact that if you win yards per pass play, you're probably going to win your game. I mean, and since the 1970 AFL NFL merger, I wrote this article for the Wall Street Journal. 74 percent of of games have been won by the team that wins yards per pass play by any margin, any margin, wow. like it could be just microscopic. So if you only know that stat and you're looking and somebody's telling you, uh, you know, if you had, if you didn't watch the games at all and you just ask the person who's looking at the newspaper who won yards per pass play and they tell you, and you just guess that team to win, you're going to be right 75% of the time. But that's something when we watch the games, no one talks about, you know, this, so that doesn't mean that some of the narratives that they do talk about are false. It just means that not enough um, uh, information is being passed along to the viewers about the things like play success rate, mm. yards per pass play. When have you watched an NFL game and you heard? When have you ever heard the team saying, "Wow, this team is really crushing the uh, the opposition in this game in yards per pass play"? Never. Never. Never hear it. Even I would think Collinsworth would say something like that with a Pro Football Focus. But I don't ever hear him use terms like that. Yeah, and it's so obvious, and it's so easy to calculate. Like, you don't need to have anybody look at film to give you the number. Could just be could be run, uh, you know, during the game, um, and especially like the play, whether a play is successful or not is way more important than the average on the play. So the interesting thing, though, uh, you know, all the analytics guys we've had a lot on this podcast, a lot of the pro football focus guys, other all you know, they're all about passing on first down. Don't try and force the run down a team's throat where the, then there's that old school coaches, let's, we're going to run them first down. It seems to me, like I'm with the analytics, like if you're facing a an eight-man box, you're not going to be able to run the ball. I get not, so frustrated when I ha, you know, I'm rooting for a team and they run on first down and get one yard. But why do teams still do it then? Well, I think in, you know, I'm, I'm a colleague of Josh Hermsmeyer uh, at 538, and I talk to him a lot about this kind of stuff. And I think... And he agrees that that basically what the game comes down to it's 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 
you hate to say that everything's a chess game because chess is like a chess game. Nothing else is really like a chess game. <laughs> however, however, what you're trying to do in the NFL is always to get the advantages um, in, in terms of the, the defensive alignment that you're facing. So if you can force teams with multiple receivers to have a light box that you can run into because you could like maybe move your receiving tight ends in line and they're good enough blockers to actually control the line of scrimmage. And that gives you numbers in the box and sure run. I mean, the Patriots do that all the time. They hand the ball off to James White and he gets like eight yards because nobody's expecting James White to run. Right. And conversely, it's also true that if you're facing a heavy box and teams are daring you to pass, then obviously the plus EV thing to do in those situations is, is to pass. But to say, like, sort of that it's a binary thing, that you should always do this or always do that, I think that that's not really um, accepting sort of the, the reality of, of adapting your attack to what the defense is, is giving you. And so I think that the smart teams are able to sort of manipulate the defense and then respond to it in a way that gives them an expected advantage even before the ball is snapped. Yeah, by the way, uh, I read, I was reading that Cliff Kingsbury was running uh, out of four wide receiver sets a lot with David Johnson. So that seems like he's trying to bring that kind of disadvantage. And it kind of was a mixed success, worked late against the, are you, are you an air raid guy? Are you buying into the air raid system? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm buying into the air raid as something I really want to see. Yeah. However, what's really interesting about that is the air raid it follows the run and shoot. And what people don't realize is that the run and shoot which started in 1989 in the NFL and then is, uh, went by the wayside. Um, but that was the most effective running offense in the history of the NFL. Mm. But that had the quarterback under center. So you had everybody spread out wide. You had advantages in the box, and then you could hand off, and, and you didn't even have to block people because they weren't in a position to defend the, the between-the-tackle run anyway, right? Right. But the problem with the air raid offense is that every running play sort of starts in slow motion because it starts with the shotgun snap. So it's basically almost like a draw play, like all running plays are almost like draw plays. So um, there has not been, I wrote about this for the athletic, historically uh, the, the Kingsbury offense ran very poorly, especially the last three years in a, in a college context. Uh, so that would be an alarming thing if you're expecting maybe some inherent advantages based on the formation for David Johnson, say, like in fantasy football, right. where you think that he could have a really high yards per carry. Uh, the, the data on that, and also Mike Leach, who's also obviously um, the father sort of of the air raid, uh, his teams have not run well at all recently either. So I'm a little skeptical as to whether or not you're going to get the kind of advantages that you would get if this was a run and shoot offense, say, with oh, the quarterback under center. By the way, I you know the Cardinals, the Lions, I had heard don't blitz a lot. I think the Ravens are going to pressure Kyler Murray a lot. It's going to be a much different game. But uh, I want to ask you a couple more about a couple more games before I let you go. Uh, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Sunday night. Now Atlanta's offensive line really struggled to protect Matt Ryan, and Philadelphia is supposed to have a good pass rush, but they didn't get much going against the Redskins. I still feel, you mentioned desperation, I feel like Atlanta really needs this one. And my thought is, if you're going to catch Philly, catch them early. Because a lot of their defensive players didn't play in the preseason. I feel like this is a really good team. And still, I kind of lean Atlanta just based on that desperation factor. Yeah, well, huge home road splits for um, 
for Matt Ryan, right? And if you're going to pick, it's maybe a little bit of a reverse uh, Dolphins effect for the for the Falcons offense in assessing them because if there's one place that you don't want to play as a quarterback in the NFL in today's game, it's at Minnesota. So, you know, Mike Zimmer really puts the clamps down on opposing quarterbacks in Minnesota. And that could have just been a function uh, of, of opponent quality in terms of the relatively poor performance as related to the expectations for the Falcons offense. But now they're going to be at home where they play a lot better. So you would think that that is going to, um, uh, you know, improve their chances. This is an offense that really should, uh, all the pieces seem to be there. So I would expect a, a high-scoring game. I do have a lot of faith in the Philadelphia offense. I think Carson Wentz is a, is a great quarterback. And Deshaun Jackson, I wrote for 538, is probably the most valuable non-quarterback uh, player in his era. For, the, for his ability to actually increase the yards per pass play and offensive efficiency of his teams just because of the, his ability to take the top off of the defense and to threaten defenses deep so much that it opens up the field for all of his teammates. That's pretty against the grain. I mean, you're saying he's more valuable than a Julio Jones or Odell Beckham or one of the, you know, what we think of as a top two or three game or Antonio Brown. I mean, listen, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an Eagles fan growing up, and I, I was there on Sunday, and Deshaun changed the game single-handedly. But, I mean, if I challenge you by say you're saying he's more valuable than J.J. Watt, uh, you, you would stick with that take? Well, yeah. Well, first of all, I think that offense is just more important than, than more valuable than defense. Okay. But, but um, so it would have to be an offensive player. I'm not saying that he's the best receiver. No. What I'm saying is he impacts his team and improves his team more than any player. Um, but the, the, the difficulty as far as analytics and improving this is, is that we don't really have data for how Julio Jones is improving the Falcons offense because he's only been on the Falcons. The good thing about Deshaun Jackson is he's been on so many teams that we can track how they were in yards per pass play the year before he arrived, the year he arrived, the, his last year. The, the first year without him. And when you add up all of these factors, he's actually creating between six tenths and one yard of yards per pass play um, for his teams consistently. And boy, if you're doing that, you're talking about a player who's probably worth like, um, you know, four to six points in, in, in terms of uh, the scoring of his team. I'll give you one to challenge that. I'm also a Bengals fan. Don't ask. Without A.J. Green, it is an unbelievably different team. And the the, the numbers, he, I know he hasn't been on two different teams, but their win-loss record is much worse when he's out. Could you see, Would you buy that A.J. Green challenges Deshaun Jackson for very much the same reasons as, as valuable? Uh, maybe. That's another way that you could look at it. And we also yeah. did look at, um, at, in the 538 article, we also did look at, Jackson's performance when he's actually on a team in games that he's played versus games that he's been inactive due to injury. Um, and, and you could do something similar with, with Green since he's missed so many games. It's harder to do with somebody like Julio because he's been pretty healthy right. except for that one season. So you're really only looking at one season's worth of data where a guy like Jackson, he sprinkles in his missed games every single season. So mm. it, it provides a much better 
sort of analytics framework for that. But, um, you know, the interesting thing about Green is that historically, uh, Andy Dalton really hasn't had a very, um, a, a significantly better or even a better at all passer rating on his targets to Green versus his targets to the rest of the team. But that may actually be proving your point in a sense because maybe it's the presence of Green that is opening up the field and making the other players the other receivers more efficient. Yeah. And but, also, but ironically, yeah. Seattle was pretty, pretty good offensively last week. I mean, they were extremely good. John Ross was like a revelation. But yeah, but he had some, he had a few big drops. Uh, you right. Know. But he dropped, he dropped a touchdown. And then on the next play, he caught a touchdown anyway. I know that killed me on Twitter because I was ripping him. And then he caught a touchdown. <laughs> you know, just a, a number here. They were five and four with AJ Green last year and one and six without him. There was also injuries at some point. Dalton broke his thumb too. Yeah. Dalton so, was out too. That's the tricky thing about that for last year. Right. Yeah. A couple more games. I know you got to run here. Uh, Rams, uh, Saints at LA, obviously a revenge game and all that. Um, What's your take? I feel like Camara. The, the Saints have all these weapons. There are a lot of people saying, "Oh, Drew Brees can't throw long anymore. He's washed up." But I, first of all, I felt like he was kind of picking apart the Texans, and I feel like Camara is like a special, unique weapon, and that's really where if they're going to get the Rams, where they're going to get them. Yeah, you know, it's it's fun. Like Brees obviously is 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 not really driving the ball even as well as he had had in his prime. However. He's still a great quarterback because we know we watched the game when when he got the ball back. What happened is what we expected to happen. So you can't say that Drew Brees is just a shadow of his former self, but simultaneously say, "Oh my God, they gave Brees thirty nine seconds in a timeout. <laughs> They're going to lose this game." You know, like it's just you don't even have to watch it. You knew what was gonna, going to happen. I think this is another really good matchup for Brees, who you know the. He was sort of devalued in fantasy because the expectation was that the Saints were going to want to be a run-dominant, defensive-oriented team. However, you know, you had like, what, 370 passing yards on Monday night. Now he's going into another situation where it's probably going to be pedal to the metal. Um, Maybe the Saints' defense isn't that good. Uh, I would expect another 350-yard passing day out of Drew Brees in this game, and I do expect the Saints to win. I think the Saints are a better team. Goff only had about like 190 yards passing last week. Goff has really been out of sorts since about week 11 of the 2018 season. If you include all those games, including the playoffs, he's he's playing at a, a sub-mediocre level. Wow. In almost every quantitative stat. And he's going to have to prove that he can get back up to that level that he was at where it looked like he wasn't merely a guy who was riding the bus, he was looking like a quarterback who actually drives the bus, right? He's got to get back to that because, you know, he has not been – he's got to carry this offense now, especially with girly status every week in flux. Is there any way, any chance that uh, defensive coordinators caught up with Sean McVay a little bit and that's why Goff has come down to earth? Well, yeah, you know, you just don't don't care about the – defenses can be really stupid, you know, like – the play action pass should not work that much because <laughs> you are you are you are protecting yourself. You are defending a thing that's not going to even hurt you that badly, and you're exposing yourself to the thing that can kill you. I mean, it was a founding principle of the Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells Giants defenses, where if you are faced with the uh, slow death versus the quick death. 
pick the slow death every time. <laughs> That's why Thurman Thomas ran for like a thousand yards in Super Bowl 25, but the Giants won anyway because they weren't going to let the Bills score 50 points against them. You know, it's funny. Uh, you also ignore that that jet sweep guy that's running around. I felt towards the end of the season, like defenses didn't even notice him. The, the, the guy who's running across the entire length of the field for the Rams. Okay, last game. Is there any reason to apply any kind of logic to the Jets-Browns Monday night game? Is that going to be Jetsian and Brownsian, or do you have a, a more reasoned approach to that matchup? Well, Sam Darnold is out now. Yeah. Mono. You know, when you have a 21-year-old quarterback, it's like, nah, I'm a Jets fan. So, <laughs> you know, you're not thinking. I have kids, you know, and you worry about Mono. And then you're just like, well, he's basically a kid. I mean, you know, oh, he's 22 now. But the quarterback getting Mono, like, who knows? This could be a thing that could last six weeks, three months. I mean, everybody who's ever experienced mono or knows somebody with it knows that it can be just devastating. So it's really hard. This game gets like completely blown up right now because you're going to have Trevor, Trevor Simeon at quarterback for the Jets. Le'Veon Bell missed practice today because he's yeah. getting an MRI on his shoulder. Um, the Jets are really uh, riddled with injuries. They no, Anunua, no, CJ Mosley questionable. Oh my God. It's, it's awful. And even, you know, they got Demarius Thomas, and he's got a hamstring. I know. So well, he's I... not practicing until – well, you know, the thing is, the Jets really need – and this just goes for – forget about the Jets right now, because without Darnold, they're, they're really not even a, a functional team uh, or offense, in my opinion. But, but, um, but what people don't realize in the NFL, I think this is a thing that's going to become a big story uh, in, in, in the next year or two, is that we – have to stop looking at receivers as like the 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 number one receiver, number two receiver, and the slot receiver. Really, what receivers are are short area target specialists, intermediate targets mm. area specialists, and deep target area specialists. Right. So the Jets have Robbie Anderson deep, deep, and they have uh, Jameson Crowder in the short area. They don't have that intermediate uh, uh, depth of target threat right. in their offense. And without that, if you're lacking in any of those areas, you cannot function offensively because you don't have a guy who can who can attack the weaknesses of the defense. You have to be able to attack the defense horizontally and vertically. And if you can't get somebody who can threaten all strata of the field, you can't really have a functional NFL passing offense. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, this is a big game, Browns, Monday night. Then they go on a short week to New England, so that should fix everything. And Darnold's supposed to be out. I mean, talking about it's an eighteen and a half point spread now against the Dolphins. What's the spread of the Jets at Patriots with Trevor Simeon under center and all these injuries? It's going to be monstrous. Yeah, probably. I would say probably not quite what the what the spread is at Miami, but probably fourteen and a half. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, with what, Darnold not playing. Well, let's see what the Brown the Jets look like on Monday night if they completely fold. Without uh, Sam Darnold, I think that it could get get way up there, especially on a short week. But uh, oh man, it's interesting, uh, Michael. I I am guilty of so many overreactions after week one. Do you have to find yourself, you know, as an analytic, more logical guy? Do you have to fight uh, that urge to just say week one is going to play out the rest of the year because we know that it really doesn't mean as much as we think it does. 
Well, here's the problem with week one, right? We wait so long for week yeah. one. We wait so long for actionable data, and then we get it, and then we want to act, right? We want to yes. we want to react to it. It's finally something. You know, we've we've been reacting to all of the nonsense all summer based on, like, coaches' quotes and things that reporters are seeing maybe in practice when they're allowed to actually, like, watch with, uh, you know, through the gates. Um, and But now we actually have games. So it's really hard to discipline ourselves to realize that this is just one game. It's no different than one week's worth of games in, in you know, October. So uh, a lot of things that happen that seem to be uh, lasting, for example, like the uh, uh, sort of historic week one performances of the rookie wide receivers, those are things that are probably going to be ephemeral. Like they're not going to be lasting. You're not going to be able to uh, have wisely bet on those guys to continue to perform like they performed in week one, even though everything inside of us is saying these guys were really good in week one. They're only rookies. It was their first game. They're going to be at least this good and maybe even be better. It's like, no, it never works that way. Trust uh, me, as a Jets fan, who <laughs> remembers Stephen Hill and his first game wow. for the Jets. He was good? He had 89 yards and two touchdowns oh in his God. first game. But that did not last. All right, Michael, uh, hopefully we'll talk to you down the road to see how some of these uh, early season takes play out. I love it, man. Thank you for all the insight. Hey, I appreciate it. It was really good talking to you. <laughs> Wow, that was very educational. Mario, did you know all those words he was using? Uh, absolutely not. I think I used a dictionary a couple times. Yeah, that was good. And, you know, if we're learning anything from this Against the Green podcast, it's that the analytics guys just love the passing game. They do not want to see you run the ball. You know, Michael, with his yards per pass play being the key stat, that was so interesting because I always heard, you know, turnovers is the key stat, but that yards per pass play is the new thing. But that, again, you're not exactly going to wow the girls if you walk into a bar on Friday night, Mario, and say, hey, did you know that the Bengals had more yards per pass play than the Niners last week? Uh, I'm going to try it out this week, uh, and then I'll get back to you next week and see how it goes. Well, you're up in Connecticut. You might try it on those Yale. I'm going to Houston. I'm going to Houston this weekend. For what? Longhorns. No way. Yeah. Rice Longhorns. Now, talk about a smart school. I once did an interview with a guy named James Casey, who was a tight end in the NFL, he played at Rice, and the, the engineering students made him do an experiment. How far could he throw it to himself and catch the ball? Because he was a former high school quarterback. And he could, uh, what do you think he got to? Like, throw it in the air and then run down and catch it. 25 yards. 30. Well, wow. that's a good guess. How, how far are you? You played high school. How far do you think you could get? You're pretty slow right I'm now. pretty slow, yeah. <laughs> Probably 10 <laughs> yards, if that. <laughs> it's an Five yards. <laughs> Try it at home. All right, thanks for listening. We will be back after week two with more Against the Grain Insight right here. Thanks. Against the Grain.